0: Digital Gonzo? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) If you like. That's old school. Digital Drift, episode 33, originally recorded Sunday, 8th of June, 2014. And scratch that too. It's actually School of Movies, episode 181, The Little Mermaid.
1: For over 50 years, Walt Disney has turned classic stories into classic animated motion pictures. Now, the tradition continues as one of the world's greatest stories becomes the newest Disney motion picture classic. The Little Mermaid.
2: I want to be where the people are. I want to see, want to see them dancing. Up where they walk, up where they run. Up where they stay all day in the
1: sun. It's the story of Ariel, a beautiful young mermaid who wants to become human.
2: He's very handsome, isn't he?
1: I don't know, he looks kind of hairy and slobbery to me.
2: Not that one. The other one.
1: And she'll strike a bargain with a powerful sea witch. Have we got a deal? To make her dream come true.
3: What I want from you is...
1: Your voice. My voice? You've got it, sweet cakes. you have
2: been turned into a human.
1: Have you lost your senses completely? The human world, it's a mess. Now, the little mermaid is exploring the mysteries of her strange new world. (gasps) What's your name? Mm -hmm. What's wrong? You can't speak? But to regain her voice, the sea witch's spell must be broken.
4: Move it! We got an emergency here!
1: Broken by the kiss of true love. Kiss the it's Walt Disney Pictures' 28th full-length animated motion picture featuring dozens of delightful new Disney characters and seven magical new songs.
4: Sh-la-la, sh-la-la, don't stop now, so hide
1: out, this holiday season, share the wonder and magic of a very special entertainment event. A fantastic adventure above the waves and under the sea. Under the sea, under the sea. When the sun begins to fade, we're
4: losing to the sea. Yeah, we ain't lucky down in the muck here. Under the sea.
1: Walt Disney Pictures, The Little Mermaid.
0: Tonight we're looking at the first chapter in Disney's nineteen nineties renaissance. As far as I'm concerned, in the history of Disney, a man tried to draw an elephant and instead drew a swan, a woodpecker, an aardvok, a cat, a dog, a mouse, another aardvok, and 20 more animals that weren't elephants for 52 years. And then, with the Little Mermaid, finally, triumphantly, he drew an elephant. This isn't just what Disney is for me alone. There are several generations now who share this view, so so significant was this step forward within our lifetimes now i have the perspective thanks to the previous shows to see what disney was in the 40s 50s 60s 70s and 80s it had hits it had misses golden ages and down periods every time the house of mouse has another golden age or renaissance it starts with a princess in 1937 it was snow white in 1950 it was cinderella and in 2009 it was tiana And in 1989, it was Ariel. With this princess, usually following a bunch of middlingly successful animal comedies, comes a re-evaluation of what Disney means to audiences everywhere. A return to their Snow White fairy tale roots and a re-appraisal of what works and what could improve it. The reason this 90s run was what I see as a long-awaited realisation of an elephant is down to what was added far more emotionally developed characters with more concerted arcs. One of the additions made in the 90s was that 8 of the 10 films made between 89 and 99 were Broadway-style musicals. There had been musical numbers before, but rarely so absolutely key to character development. This was a style encouraged by Howard Ashman, who we will talk about a lot in a bit. Starting with Oliver and company, Disney upped their development schedule. Oliver was number 27 after five decades. 26 years later, we're on number 54 with Big Hero 6. Effectively, from Oliver onwards, they doubled their output. And since Big Hero 6 at 54, we've had Zootopia at 55 and Moana at 56. So, starting now, we're going to go through the films with more vigour, taking more time because they bear up to more deconstruction, and we have a lot more production material to comb through. So, we're going to start with a look at where the studio was at in 1989 in the wake of Oliver and Company with their first real lucrative success for a while. So, hello, of course, to Sharon. Hello. And hello to our running mate of this whole series, Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. Hello. So, folks, if you're going to start watching Little Mermaid and know anything about where Disney was at this point, you really need to see the documentary we mentioned previously, uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty, which uh, is a, uh, du- directed by and put together by Don Hahn, who was a producer at Disney over the 90s. Um, and Did he come from an animation background? Of course he did. Yeah, he's talking about his animation background. Um, and uh, it's, it's a document of what happened between, say, Fox and the Hound all the way up to The Lion King. And it really was a case of the Disney animators. I mean, it felt like watching The Office. They were just having fun, eating birthday cake, you know, having wild parties and not really producing the best films. And there was this kind of a sense of, well, Walt died a long time ago and we're never going to make films as good as that. So let's just do what we can. And then new management was brought in with uh, Michael Eisner, uh, who brought in Jeffrey Katzenberg. And... Katzenberg kicked the living shit out of the Disney animation team for many, many years. Revisions. A hundred drawings go in
5: the trash.
1: (laughs) The fact is, is that the last couple of animated movies made were not particularly good. That year, we were beat out at the box office by the Care Bears movie. We knew we hit rock bottom when the studio told us that we were being kicked out of our own building.
0: I think after that meeting, we all kind of said,
1: we're going to make great films. The work was intense, the hours were long, and there was only one thing that could stop it all. Margaritas. This crew is the best
5: crew. (laughs) Can you
2: really
1: do what you want to do in animation? We have to do in this company. That is our legacy. From the producer of The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast,
6: comes the true story of the players.
5: Hi, Tim. This is Tim Burton. And who are you? I'm John Lasseter. He's the cameraman.
6: And the passion. The real heartbeat of this company was, is, and will always be the film business. That fueled one of the greatest comebacks in entertainment history. And the winner is
1: Beauty and the Beast. Told by the people who were actually there. We were a group of artists living the dream. We went from hitting rock bottom to creating the most successful films ever. This is the story of how we got there. Waking Sleeping Beauty.
0: I, I know you've got an axe to grind on, uh, on Katzenberg. If you want to save that for the rescuers bit, Dan, you can do that. But uh...
7: I'll actually save it for something a little bit. It's, it's really a specific thing I want to talk about because oh, I, yeah. I actually do have mixed... Opinions on Eisner and Katzenberg because they did a lot of good. Oh yeah,
0: no, no, and
7: a lot of bad also.
0: It it is very much shades of grey because basically these guys were sort of you know making stuff like the Fox and Hound, and because not necessarily because of, but. Around the time they were being treated terribly, they all they kind of upped their game and started making things like *The Little Mermaid*. And it wasn't a straightaway overnight; they started being treated badly, but and then suddenly this happened. But something worked. So, I mean, Dan, what what do you know of this?
7: Uh I think a bit of it is that we it, the studio was still filled with lots of young blood that hadn't quite. Like reached their full potential as artists. And that was slowly happening, uh, just film by film. And by The Little Mermaid, they were absolutely there. I think part of it also was that Eisner and Katzenberg coming in, really and uh, just bringing an outside perspective and a Hollywood outside perspective too, which is a much more like cutthroat, we're doing this sort of just way of approaching things. I think for all the good and bad that they brought, they definitely lit a fire under the Disney Studio, and they and the Disney artists realized they had to produce, or there would be major consequences, jobs lost, maybe this whole thing would close down. So they were made to really. It was sort of a put up or shut up kind of time for them. And so I think it and that pressure was definitely a contributing factor in some of the greatness we started seeing mm. immediately after. Because I mean, right around the time these, I mean, Eisner and Katzenberg came in during the black cauldron that which we would all agree is the low point mm-hmm. and in terms there, of how
0: much money spent how much time and effort put into it and what little actual return that basically had both creatively and financially
7: absolutely the black cauldron is definitely an example of a studio where the artists have got a bit too much power in the artist business kind of dynamic and it, at that point, it was a bunch of young and experienced artists, too. So you didn't even really get a, as great a result for all the power they had. Mm. But they were just spending way too much money just going way overboard, making a thing that was not, that did not deserve that much investment. Mm. And so Eisner and Katzenberg really whipped things into shape, made them start working lean, made them start really just demanding that they produce. And they came in. Again, for better or worse, with no regard for what had been done before I mean, I'm amazed time, that they
0: got to a uh, black cauldron from rescuers, which is one point two million in seven years to forty five million
7: It really is impressive and it, i mean that's that's a lot faster than inflation goes, so yeah. i don't know what made them start gaining the confidence to start spending that kind of money on a film. I guess,
0: I mean, they really want not was a, bit, a big one, because that actually did make a decent chunk back, even though it wasn't really the, the, the amount that they needed, but um, That's it true. gave them but, confidence.
7: And they really did want Black Cauldron to be big. I mean, they wanted that to be their Snow White, so they were they were kind of sleeping beautying it a bit. <laughs> just, yeah. like, throw all yeah. the money at this.
0: That, that's a good way of putting it, fruit-caking it. Uh, that, that was done later on with, uh, so, so like, um, I think Treasure Planet cost a ton. Oh, boy, I bet. Yeah.
7: These guys, and ever since Waltz had passed on Jungle Book, the mantra around Disney animation had always been, what would Walt do in this mm. situation? And that's how they kind of guided a lot of their decisions. They were being
0: ruled by a dead man.
7: They really were, and, I mean, like, and I can't blame him. I probably like, it's like when you're in the studio that he willed into existence mm. and brought to such great heights, then I mean, no you, one wants to have the arrogance start, to,
0: to start saying, I think this is what we should do because it's, I'm more important than good old uncle Walt.
7: For sure. I mean, you, you'd you probably see if say like, Lassiter had died like five years ago, you mm. know, Pixar would totally be oh, in yeah. a state of like, what would Lassiter have done sort of situation. So I can totally understand it. And, to a degree, it's watching Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is its interesting how much of a business side perspective that film takes because it's entirely following the big egos and the big, it's totally following the Hollywood guys in this. Yeah. D- during a time when they're about to start making some of the strongest artistic films, like that, some of that Disney has ever made, but it's doing it all from a business perspective. So it's a really interesting perspective to see on it. But, and it's almost frustrating sometimes watching it, seeing how little regard they have for the history of what the studio has created and what it meant and how quickly and easily Katzenberg is is able to say, all right, we are pulling you guys out of that studio where so much history has been made. And we're going to put you guys on a crummy back lot out in Glendale. <laughs>
8: yeah. <laughs> in
0: they put them in caravans.
7: Yeah. And it's it's, which from like disney people and everyone who is working in that studio is going to be like disney like they're fans of disney they love disney Hmm. they love the history that they're a part of and now they're getting out of of that history
0: historical building where they made snow white and the seven Dwarfs. this is the disney animation studio isn't there right that's it closing the door is was that reopened did they go back in there eventually i
7: i don't think so I don't think they went to that same building at least. they' mm. actually, I believe they got a new building. Uh, if
0: you by the and, way, folks, if you like what we've been saying, just see this documentary we're talking about. it's speaking this along these lines, along this language, and you need some uh, some visual cues to go with this history we're feeding you. then this is it's it's three ninety nine on iTunes in in SD. That's the easiest, quickest way to see it. It's great.
7: It is probably the most interesting Disney documentary I've ever mm. seen. so and, highly truthful, recommend yeah. it. and that as well. yeah. so. But, I mean, for all the frustration of seeing these Hollywood guys come in and just throw their weight around and say, this is how we're doing things now, out with the old ways, in with the new. We're bringing all of our Hollywood knowledge into how to run a company into this studio. It's hard to watch in some places, but it's hard to argue with the results, too, because it made these guys, these uh, Disney artists and storytellers, start really producing and working hard to really, like, meet the demand that was put that was a meet what was expected of them and you started seeing the results just film by film they started getting better
9: see you say that though (laughs) but i don't think personally that the the way in which uh
0: katzenberg in particular
9: the way in which the motivation was handed down from management strikes me as being poorly thought out
7: absolutely <laughs> and <Yes. laughs>
9: i don't believe that little mermaid is a direct result of making them work in trailers in the parking lot
0: and come in for sunday morning meetings at 7am 6am 6 6 a.m. Yeah. Yeah. jesus so,
7: so Just, this is this is the difference between directing and running a studio of like salesmen and, art, and business people and running yeah. a bunch of artists. Like, you do not go into a, into a room with a bunch of artists and give them the Glengarry Glen Glenn Ross winner's <laughs> clothes speech because that is <laughs> the, the most...
0: These are the Ross balls that you get if you do it to the little Yeah, mermaid. like,
7: second prize is a set of steak knives, third, not, third prize is you're f***ing fired. <laughs> 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 you, you do not go into a room of artists and tell them that because that is the most demoralizing thing you can hear, and when you're demoralized, you do not produce your best work. You want That's to be inspired. That's
0: exactly what I said to Sharon. You cannot tell You cannot just bring in animators and try to break their spirits and say animate better, because you animate from your heart. It's not. It's not simply a mathematical process of making your hand move faster. No,
9: Absolutely. and if your heart is exhausted, <laughs> then you can't possibly
0: produce. Yeah, I if mean, you break someone's spirit. The spirit is the heart.
9: If you if you look at the way uh, the documentary looks at the different personalities who came in and added their two cents to how the studio was being run, I do think there are some positive contributions there. And I think, for me, it almost seems... And, and this is entirely coming out of my own personal bias because I'm very much not uh, the end justifies the means kind of person. But it seems to me that the upturn came around about the time that they brought in Peter Schneider Peter Schneider whose approach was very much you can do better than this he was he was a push hard and push fast kind of person but his his Ideas all seem to be focused around how can we train you to do better? What, how can we help you fulfill your potential in a way that then meets the requirements that we want to turn out? Rather than I'm going to stand behind you with this huge... Fu- I'm going to stand behind you with this <laughs> huge stick and woe betide anybody who messes up.
7: Yeah, Schneider so, yeah, did seem to have the softer touch. Jeffrey
9: mm. was the stick. David was the carrot. <laughs> Uh, sorry, Peter was the carrot.
0: <laughs> Eisner actually comes off as somebody with a bit more soul than I ever gave him credit for. Especially since um, uh, around about the, the Lion King time, he ended up having a heart attack, uh, which um, was stress induced. Clearly, he you know he was not just some fat cat CEO pressing a button marked money over and over again until enough siphoned into his bank account. He was clearly you know busting his balls for this company, uh, and. There are occasional moments like when he was trying to give the the speech for uh, Frank Wells who died suddenly and unexpectedly around that time um, it, it breaks him down because he actually knew and, and liked this guy and, and uh, it's it, it's not the same as when you see Katzenberg speak. there are little hints when when he talks that suggest he might not have a soul. When he was talking about – well, they're talking about the fact that – just to to go to Little Mermaid, uh, part of your world was nearly cut from the film because they did a test screening and um, little kids started fidgeting in front of Katzenberg and, you know, dropped his popcorn. And um, there was a, you know, discussion afterwards, like, we've got to cut this thing and, uh, you know, kids aren't going to want to sit and watch some mermaid sing about what she wants. Uh, and everybody in, like, uh, Musker, Clements, Ashman, were, like, horrified. This is the core of the movie. Are you insane? Uh, You know, just because some kid dropped his popcorn, you can't gauge it on that. And Katzenberg was kind of... It wasn't just the kid. And what he meant was, I'm going to go ahead and extrapolate from that, I didn't like seeing a mermaid sing about what she wants, which means he literally has no soul. I'm not saying anyone listening right now... Um, if you didn't love that bit in the little moment, you don't have a soul. However, it's kind of odd getting someone who doesn't really feel anything for that kind of emotional beat in a very important position of power at Disney Studios. It's like if that doesn't reach you on any level, what are you doing here?
7: Yeah. See, this is this is kind of my ranting point on, on uh Katzenberg in general it's I, I do recognize that when you are in the middle of production and things are not complete and you're not seeing the finished thing yet it's a lot harder to sometimes have a perspective on what is the crucial important best thing like what is going to be like what is great and what is not there's certain things that seem great all throughout production and in the end you kind of realize weren't as important there are other parts that you like it's not really until you see them fully realized and created that you realize how important they are. I do understand that. And I want to give him the benefit of the doubt in some regard, especially because he is not an, and he is not a storyteller. He is not an animation person, but that's also kind of my, that's also kind of the core of the point. Like it took, I mean, yeah, it took Clements Musker and then Ashman and then finally Glenn Keane going up to him and basically saying, this is bullshit. what are you doing? <laughs> to <laughs> convince him to leave it in at least until this film was closer to completion and later test screenings could give results. But, like, as much...
0: Bear in mind, this is a bunch of kids sitting watching line drawings play out.
7: That as well, yeah. Like, I mean, this, as much good as these guys did for the studio, they are not visionaries. That's the difference between these guys and Walt. Like, these are business guys with a business mentality.
1: Who the hell is your business manager?
2: Business-wise, this all seems like appropriate business. Business, business, business. Numbers. Is this working? Yes. Yay!
7: And he was willing to cut a vital, beautiful sequence from a film because of badly interpreted results of one test screening. That's
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's the visionary thing as well. That, boiled down, means that when you see... The line drawings and the the just the storyboards playing out with the even just the test soundtrack with people singing and talking and you know going along with it, if it's done right and it clearly was done right enough at that point, you can if you were a visionary see what it's going to look like.
7: Yeah, I mean it's yeah, not like we couldn't it's not like Walt hadn't wanted to cut great stuff in his day. Like we need only look back to lady in the tramp spaghetti mm. sequence that Walt nearly killed, but he didn't make that judgment call off of, off of a single shred of marketing data. He didn't think it was going to work. And then someone showed him it was going to work. And then he was like, Oh, well let's do it. Is it, like That's the a, yeah, someone... Walt
0: tended to dismiss things on paper faster, but then when, when someone showed him something impassioned, he was like, "Okay, I have a bit more time for you now." Katzenberg yeah, could actually sit and watch on. it play out, and still be like, "Eh, not getting it."
9: In right, fact, I... he's the exact opposite. Remember, they gonged the Little Mermaid idea, mm-hmm. and then they went with it when Jeffrey sat down and read the treatment, and he actually said it reads better than it it's spoken.
0: Yeah, it's like he he can he can. If he's reading it, then it's speaking Jeffrey's language. If somebody yeah. so, else is so trying to express want, passion to him, he's like, sorry, you, this is binary to me.
9: If you want to get Katzenberg to do something, <laughs> write it down for him.
0: <laughs> Preferably with dollar signs on there.
7: See, this is the difference between someone with vision versus someone with marketing and metrics. See, mm. Metrics can only look backward at what has succeeded before a, a visionary can look at something new that hasn't been attempted and see the potential for success within that like if walt had been relying on metrics and business sense he wouldn't have made snow white in the first place because be business sense was constantly business sense was constantly telling him what a stupid idea snow white was but he held fast and said no just watch this is going to work because he's a visionary guy and he wasn't always right. I mean, he like lost money as often as he made it, but he knew a great thing when he saw it. And you're right. Katzenberg is not a visionary. He screened an incomplete film to a kids-only audience and made a snap decision at the first red flag. Yeah. And it wasn't until they screened it later in a more complete state with some adults in the room who loved it that it occurred to him, oh, right, adults could like this. Because – that's the problem with metrics. You're only going to get results based on what you're testing for.
0: It's also the problem with test screenings. If you've seen that episode of The Simpsons with the itchy and scratchy and poochy, and if you haven't, how are you listening to these podcasts? <laughs> um, it, the, the one where they're basically asked to, you know, click left or right depending on whether they like or don't like what's going on on screen. That's a binary reaction to something that that you know you could not like something and it could actually affect you, and it'd be really good because of that. That
6: means nothing. All right, thanks for participating in our focus group, kids. Today, we're going to show you some itchy and scratchy cartoons. Yeah! Cool! We want you to tell us what you think, and be honest, because no one from the show is here spying on you.
5: Why is that mirror sneezing?
6: Uh, look, it's just an old creaky mirror. You know, sometimes it sounds a little like it's sneezing or coughing or talking softly. Now, you each have a knob in front of you. When you like what you see, turn the knob to the right. When you don't like what you see, turn it
2: left. My knob tastes funny.
6: Please refrain from tasting the knob.
2: Hey, quit it!
6: (laughs) They like itchy, they like scratchy. One kid seems to love the Speedo man. What more do they want? Okay, how many of you kids would like Itchy and Scratchy to deal with real life problems like the ones you face every day? And who would like to see them do just the opposite, getting into far out situations involving robots and magic powers? So, you want a realistic, down to earth show that's completely off the wall and swarming with magic robots? That's-
2: you should win things by watching,
4: huh <sighs> You kids don't know what you want, that's why you're still kids, cause you're stupid. Just tell me what's wrong, what the freaking show. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Also, so, uh, how many be, people watching the end of seven would go
4: I don't like
0: that yes that's the point
9: plus the fact <laughs> if you're concentrating on flicking a switch you're not engaging with what's in front of you
7: true yeah See, test screenings test can be yeah. super valuable yeah when you, when you do them right like when you're when you're looking for the correct information, like Pixar does test screenings constantly because they're wanting to see like how is this working and they're not necessarily just taking I like that, I didn't like that but they're kind of gauging how is it's like playtesting in a video game, too. You're, like, not necessarily listening to what the people tell you. You're just watching them while watching they play and seeing yeah, exactly. is, is what I'm going for working. Yeah.
9: That's another thing as well. The fact that uh, Katzenberg was so gobsmacked that the idea that adults could like this film. Did you hear his other comment? Boy movies make more money than girl movies. Why are we That's, bothering with a girl movie?
7: That is the other Rosa thing. Yeah. Frozen
0: says
7: hi. Yeah, because <laughs> one like, billion he, he was dollars. He was cautioning the directors the entire time that Mermaid was not going to be a huge box office hit like Oliver and Company because it was a girl's film, which continues to be this nugget of fucking Hollywood wisdom <laughs> that great girls films keep disproving over and over, but they don't swear. listen. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mermaid grossed over a hundred million dollars and was enormous. And Disney is, like you said, drowning in frozen money right now. Mm. Like, I don't well, want to completely be, be down on him or Eisner or Schneider because they really did save Disney animation, mm. which was nose diving into the cliffs at the time. And they gave they put money into the studio and gave them the opportunity to create some of their best work. Mm. But I also think it's really telling that this era of tremendous success sputtered out and nosedived under their leadership in less than a decade.
0: We'll get to that when we get to those with the sputtering, but um,
7: <laughs> yes, we will.
0: But yeah, the uh, it, it's what they were exercising was uh, practices that don't necessarily work forever.
7: Just do the same thing over and over again because it worked the first time, mm. and that's yeah. what we can measure.
9: I think though, the uh, if you look at the the Disney's success seems to come in waves. And I think part of this is they hit on not a formula exactly, but a method that works and really grabs a particular set of of people, a a particular generation, if you like, Mm. um, of viewers, audience members, however you would categorise it for for films. Mm. And then the wave kind of carries on. As that generation grows up and they get that wave for about four, five, six, seven years tops. Mm-hmm. And then that generation kind of loses interest in Disney films because right. they're now too old for it. But now that method and that approach isn't going to work for the next batch of kids. They mm. have to find something different to grab the next lot. So they default to wave, the
0: animal adventure.
9: For a little while, yes. And does it ever work?
0: No. Nope. <clears> nope.
9: With the exception of the Lion King.
0: No, no, that's not, not the same thing. That is not the same thing. The that animal doesn't... adventure, I'm talking about things like Bolt. I'm not... Uh, you know, yes. The Lion King, if they weren't lions, would still work. If that took place in 14th century Denmark, that would still work.
9: That's very true.
0: Zootopia, if it was just made as a, uh, a human cop buddy adventure for kids... Well, I suppose it would be a lot more hard hitting and kids probably wouldn't like it, but the actual the the mechanics of the film are really, really strong. And the animals are there to provide the allegory.
7: It it seems like they basically capture lightning in a bottle for a little while and then just try to ride it out as long as they can. Because hmm. this this film is definitely a lightning in the bottle situation. It's it obviously cannot have been entirely Eisner and Katzenberg leadership, because there was a lot of other things coming into play like the artists finally growing into their own and maturing and becoming it's some of the best artists disney ever had and the cap system
0: that clearly made things a lot more and um, maybe not simpler but you're going to hopefully explain this in a bit it revolutionized the way their films looked
7: definitely the technology and money being kind of put into the studio again honestly just ashman alone being brought in was like an enormous element of what 90s renaissance Mm. disney is basically uh, disney
0: films had not looked absolutely gorgeous since sleeping beauty
7: yeah i'd agree with that it's it they looked good and they looked and it was like uh, they some of them had some really distinct aesthetics like 101 dalmatians background art which i really liked and even fox and hound had some beautifully painted backgrounds oh for sure but it wasn't they weren't really pushing the, like what they had, beyond what they had done before, yeah. until this. And
0: the expressiveness and the characters combined with absolutely astounding backgrounds. Suddenly, um, oh, yeah. that they also they managed to make backgrounds and foreground characters which meshed. I don't think that people ever really think about it that much. But if you look at some of the older Disney films, you've, that, like it's almost like the, the foreground characters, the main guys just pop out of the screen and you've got these gorgeous background things. But it's almost like they're stickers on paintings. And not, suddenly in the 90s, there's much more of a, a deep focus to it where it feels like you're watching something play out in, in a world where the characters mesh with what they're surrounded by. Most definitely, in fact, aided by Caps because you could get that layered effect.
7: Yeah, very true. You could the Caps basically it was just basically like an animation compositing and digital painting hmm. program that, which only was used for one shot in Mermaid, and then came and then was completely done for the. Was whole Was there building. a bit of Caps in uh, Oliver and Company for the staircase? Uh, no. See, that oh, was no.
0: Sorry, um, that was the same as uh, Basil. Um, the the computer assisted.
7: Yeah, that was just that was just some CG stuff layered in The cap stuff was really just we're not hand painting the cells anymore. We're putting it into it's basically like early Photoshop type thing. We're putting these all into the computer digitally. We can paint and color them in there. We can do some basic digital compositing and kind of emulate the multi-plane camera, but do even more with it. It it was Really? really just an efficiency tool.
0: Because of what computers can do now, Disney could be making so many brilliant films. They like really could just two D animation. Just for the love of Christ, don't abandon it.
7: I really hope they do. Because, I mean, you look at like Princess <laughs> and the, the Frog with two and Winnie the Pooh and just two D with modern technology assisted, assisting it can look so incredible now. Mm. I. They'll go back to it. I, I'm su- sure they will eventually go back to it Paper because eventually Man. enough people will miss it.
0: I like Paperman more than most films. It's yeah, Paperman's uh, lovely. The, the, what is
7: that? The, the sensibility
0: of it. It's it looks like 2D animation, but what is that?
7: It's it's not really a good name for it. That's the thing is they basically animated it twice because it's yeah. it, they animated it in 3D, but mm-hmm. then they took that and used a combination of software and just some hand like. Animation work to animate over that, and to basically apply the kind of a 2D technique and sensibility to it to capture basically 2D animation with three dimensional depth to it and with volume and form, which is really cool. And I hope that it will be super expensive, but I hope they eventually push to try to do a feature with it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. But you see what I mean now? With the way that technology is pushing forwards, that what is now capable. In shoot, I mean, if you if you look at uh, studios like uh, what's that Japanese studio that did um, some wars and uh, oh shoot, Where are they through time. Bear with me. I mean, obviously, not, not even including Ghibli at this point.
7: Oh sure, yeah.
0: um, Madhouse distributed by Warner Brothers, Summer Wars is one of the most absolutely gorgeous 2D animated film of all time.
7: I should watch that again. It is,
0: that it is too important a medium to simply say, well, people don't like it anymore, let's not do it. There has to be a way to go, right, can we do this relatively inexpensively and still reap a dividend from it that makes it worthwhile and keeps this heritage alive? Not just for the for the art, but because it could actually be fairly lucrative if they approach it with the kind of long-term sensibility that they're doing with, say, oh, I don't know, Avengers, Star Wars. Do, like, I don't know, just top of my head, long-running interlinking series in 2D.
7: I'm it, certain it's going to eventually come back to Disney, just as kind of nostalgic demand dictates. Yeah. But... I, that's the thing. Disney is such a huge company that it's, it could lose, they could make those films and lose money every time. And it would not be a huge drop in the bucket. I, I know that's, a, that's an artist speaking. That is not a business person speaking, yeah. but I, the Disney animation, the only reason anyone cares about Disney as a company at all, is because of the animation, its animation history. Yeah. That like they are Disney is so much bigger than animation now. Animation is just a, a like I said a drop in the bucket compared to everything else that Disney does. But d- animation is its soul, absolutely. But the only reason it's not just another company on the just on the uh on the Wall Street just charts that we don't care about whether they live or die is the only reason anyone goes to Disney World or Disneyland or any of these other parks is because of that. History of animation, yeah. and so I really hope. I mean, and three, and they're doing some great stuff with their 3D work now, and we're going to be talking about that later. But yeah, I really cannot wait for that for 2D to eventually come back because I'm sure it will. Put I it in perspective. Rather than later,
0: we are not doing one of these on DreamWorks. No. I, I, I adore Kung Fu Panda. We're definitely doing that. I adore uh, How to Train Your Dragon. We are definitely doing that. Two of the Shrek films I really, really like.
7: <laughs> but the rest? And
0: who currently runs that company?
7: That would be Katzenberg. <laughs> Talked to, yes. I've, I've spoken with some people who've worked there, and just because I was curious, they say he is all right now. <laughs> like, really? I, he's had decades of practice. I'm sure he's, like, I'm sure he's, like, he's still him, but I've, think he's probably learned how to deal with artists now so that's good he's grown
0: well that's good yeah so
7: he's he's on his own arc of sorts Um,
0: getting out
9: from under Eisner probably helped a lot with his ego issues
0: probably the ego issues not that that I
9: want to start trying to psychoanalyze Jeffrey Katzenberg the abyss would probably stare back
0: at (laughs) me. I'm I'm not sure how relevant you're going to to find this uh, Dan but after watching it for a while we figured out Jeffrey Katzenberg is Dwight Schrute (laughs) (laughs) He is a perennial middle manager, uh, constantly kind of fixated in what about me? Just watch Waking Sleeping Beauty and uh, just figure every time that he uh, starts to uh, uh, to talk about the the, the Disney business model that uh, he's like, uh, you know, "We're, we're animators, that doesn't necessarily mean we care about money. False. So, The Little Mermaid then. Crucially, uh, one of the people brought on board, and we mentioned him before, is uh, Howard Ashman. Now, we've talked about him before, and I don't think we really necessarily need to go into excruciating detail to who he was. But he cannot be marginalized in terms of how important he was for shaping the next 10 years. And it's, um, you know, if you you look back on the actual Disney, the 54 films in the uh, Disney canon, it's actually only... A chunk of them that can really be considered as the Broadway musical style, and that can really be—and when people say Disney and a certain sort of um, image forms in people's heads, they're thinking of this style of film. That certainly doesn't apply across the
7: board. It's very true. I mean, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of films that are technically musicals. The character, there are songs in them. The characters sing them. Yeah, Aristocats, but, for example. Oh, sure, yeah, but. When Ashman and Minkin came in, they I mean they, they were Broadway guys, and mm-hmm. they brought everything they knew about like, the Broadway tradition yeah. and completely infused the little mermaid with it let sorry i
0: forgot to mention alan Macon. he is absolutely crucial as well and it was a recurring presence throughout the 90s renaissance as well uh, absolutely it, it's they they worked to, for, for the first couple together extremely well as a team and then alan had to kind of go it alone afterwards but used retaining that sensibility what ashman said um about the songs was as I understand, I hope I'm correcting this one correctly. Uh, that if you take any one of them out, the story shouldn't make so much sense because the idea is it's a major emotional beat and it informs on the character so heavily if you do it right that it's like removing um, the, the limb. Of of a, a, a an animal that's supposed to function it's uh, it's not its it's like taking away organs you know you, you you can only take away so many before it ceases to be anything other than a total mess and and what you have is something hollow. the idea being that everything that really matters comes to a culminating point in these songs that's why Broadway musicals where people sort of burst into songs suddenly when they reach a certain emotional peak make much more sense than say i don't know they're miserable 's where they sing the whole way through. <laughs>
9: Do you know what I think was quite significant about Ashman's uh, musical theatre knowledge as well? Little Shop of Horrors, he understood musical theatre well enough to be able to parody it.
0: Yeah, he said you've got to yep. remember it's silly and do the thing with uh, tongue-in-cheek because if, again, like with Little Miserable, if you take it too seriously, uh, and, and, and you know, basically people are singing. If you take that too seriously, suddenly you start to disappear up your own fundament.
7: You know, there is inherent silliness to mm-hmm. the form, but it's a wonderful silliness that you have, just have to embrace. Yeah, it's, and it's, he it's, it's, absolutely it's, knew how to do that.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, a well handled camp, but um, uh, it's it's managed with a certain amount of very carefully placed cynicism. Say, for example, um, during part of your world, a very important presence throughout that song, Sebastian. He never sings a word, but he's always on screen trying to get Ariel's attention and bring her back down and say, well, could you just stop singing for two seconds? I've got to talk to you. There's important stuff here. But he keeps getting caught in her doodads and bits and bobs and stuff. And he's the sort of the, come on, um, members of the audience. And it stops the, so- the, the the film at that point from just getting completely swept up in Ariel's teenage emotions.
7: Yeah. Honestly, the more I see this, the more evident become it becomes that Ashman was the secret ingredient that makes this film a masterpiece. It's in the sense of scale and theatricality, and just the way the whole film is structured. Yeah, but it's it it's completely a Broadway musical, and there isn't a single weak song in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, part of your world is super iconic. Under the Sea is awesome. Poor unfortunate souls is maybe one of the greatest villain songs ever. How about
0: Les Poissons? Les Poissons?
3: (laughs) Even even,
7: Les Poissons is awesome. It's
0: (laughs) it's catchy. Yeah, it's definitely.
9: I think if
0: you look, I was saying to Sharon, by the way, sorry, Sharon, that uh, even though that bit's racist as hell, (laughs) it's nowhere near as racist as the French taunting in uh, Holy Grail. So we'll let it slide. (laughs) Carry on, Sharon.
9: If you look at the way Ashman brought his previous experience to bear as well on this, he presented it to everybody with such passion. I think what we said about every so often they needed something new, they become complacent and then something new has to be introduced to get that wave going again. And this was incredibly new and incredibly different to what they'd done before, but was being presented to them with such enthusiasm That I can see how it would have been difficult for people not to get caught up in that and really want to do their best work to be able to match his ideas.
7: Absolutely, he was bringing so much new. Like the listening to interviews on this on behind the scenes, like Mm. all the other cast and crew, all pretty much say as much. He is responsible for so much of what they did. Mm. He shaped so much of it. It like a lot of the characters are were pretty significantly reshaped by him. Like, he meticulously crafted Benson's vocal performances for every song. Yeah. He he helps to develop Ursula into the character she is. Sebastian was originally going to be a stuffy British butler crab named Clarence, but yeah. Ashman suggested, could we give him a Jamaican voice? Which let him do a different musical style for Sebastian's songs, like Under the Sea and Kiss the Girl, which gives Mermaid its unique kind of musical style. Just The more you look behind the scenes, the more of his fingerprints you see everywhere. He uh,
0: would sing his own songs as well, unabashed. He was a a very shy, very quiet man, kind of edgy and uh, described as being a little bit reclusive. The consummate introvert, by the way. Really relate to this guy. I mean, I'm a lot less shy than than he is, but I can the whole kind of drawing within yourself to get creative kind of thing, and sort of trying to escape away from people so that you can just work. I completely get that about him. When he'd when he'd sing and when he'd uh, direct uh, people like Jodie Benson playing Ariel, he was focusing on the intensity. So rather than "What would I give if I could live out of these waters," it was "What would I give." If I could live out of these waters, just singing from the heart, singing from the inside and singing while acting. It's not just projecting in words and just singing and shouting it out at the camera. It's not just the the singing equivalent of Laurence Olivier. It's, it's this um, quieter, more modern take on just really intense emotion.
2: Maybe he's right. Maybe there is something the matter with me. <laughs> She's got everything. I've got gadgets and gizmos plenty. I've got who's its and what's its galore. You want thingamabobs? I got 20. But who cares? No big deal. I want more. I want to be where the people are. I wanna see, wanna see them dancing Walking around on those, what do you call them? Oh, feet Flipping your fins, you don't get too far Legs are required for jumping Dancing, strolling along down a What's that word again? Street Up where they walk, up where they run up where they stay all day in the sun Wandering free Wish I could be part of that world What would I give If I could live out of these waters What would I pay To spend a day warm on the sand That on land They understand that they don't Reprimand their daughters Bright young women Sick of swimming Ready to stand Ready to know what the people know Ask them my questions and get some answers What's a fire and why does it What's the word Burn When's it my turn to explore that shore up above
8: out of the
2: sea wish I could be part of that
7: i love watching behind the scenes stuff for little the little mermaid is mm. he is I mean he's the star really like he's not obviously the person that they're focusing on most of the time but any time mm. you get to see him working is just pure joy
0: but because even though he wasn't around for all of the rest of them apart from Beauty and the Beast and, and some of Aladdin uh, this set the shape of what Disney films should be for a long time and technically, I mean, it's not actually all that different now with Frozen. It's still going like this. I, they, they've gone through mutations over the years, but they, they are now re- they've they now now returned with Tangled Frozen Princess and the Frog. Moana. To this tried, tested, very beloved formula.
9: I think the form has adapted slightly, but it's, it's chased the Broadway musical again. Mm-hmm. If, because yeah. if you look at the way musicals Ideally have adapted Menzel over says, the says, hi. Years. Well, exactly. But if you, you look at that, they've had to become less... What's the word? They haven't got more cynical. If anything, they've got more idealistic and, and over the top. <laughs> but they've kind of got very theatrical and very big, but the core messages have... Had to modernize. Yeah. And I think that's kind of the route that Disney seemed to be tapping on at the moment. It tangled, Princess and the Frog, Frozen. There is definite generational change in those three in terms of how characters are presented and the uh, the mores of the story. And I mean, could could you imagine? Disney doing a story about how you make your dreams come true through hard work 20 years ago
0: 20 years ago in 1994 damn it yeah. 50 years ago I always 50 years ago yeah. I
9: forget how, how
8: long this time what so
0: like uh 64 uh I Technically, Cinderella made her dreams come true with hard work and some she help from not, mice.
9: She did not impress the prince with her floor cleaning abilities.
7: <laughs> her dreams came true, and she worked hard.
0: Yeah,
9: no, yeah. She, she was, the two were not connected. She was nice
7: to
0: vermin, and as such, these anthropomorphic <laughs> vermin basically fixed it for her, along with the, uh, the uh, delusion of a fairy godmother, to become royalty. <laughs> Do you know we never actually see Cinderella as a, as a princess? She's never actually – but she never marries the prince on camera. She's just basically, ah, you're going to go marry that prince now. So good luck. Off you go to become a princess. So technically she should be struck off the list of uh, Disney princesses. How I, thought, well,
7: I thought the last scene was her coming out of the, like, out of the church, bells ringing, maestroing. Oh, yes. No, rice. it is.
0: Sorry. No, you're absolutely right. You are absolutely right. We do see the marriage scene. And that's very important because that crystallizes princesses. Ariel, whenever she's on the Disney princesses thing, doesn't have a tail. She's in her bridal gown. That's who the princess is.
9: The one with the poofy sleeves.
0: The poofy sleeves. Uh. More on that, by the way, when we do our princess episode, which will finish off this, I believe. Um,
7: just because we've been giving... just He so often gets the short end of the stick. I do want to like give tons of praise to Alan Minkin as well, because the score for The Little Mermaid is oh, yeah. one of my all-time favorites, period. The but piano the,
0: sums up the, the, the rippling water absolutely beautifully from the really, very what, first like, note.
7: Like from the very beginning of this movie, something about it feels different and special and way beyond anything Disney's produced before. And a large part of that, I think is like after the fish, falls off the boat and back into the ocean and starts swimming deeper in and the overture starts to play and it's like it's a proper overture like you'd hear in a stage musical before the curtain rises just setting the tone and introducing the main theme and that overture sequence and the main theme that plays is just stunningly beautiful and is now one of my favorite moments in all of Disney animation because it's it's drawing you
0: into a new age
7: it totally is it's it's drawing it's introducing kind of this undersea world and then the mermaids and then the kingdom and it's all super beautiful but at the same time i think if the disney renaissance itself had a score i think this would be the opening theme for that as well because mm. like watching like i watched this little opening title sequence and i think this is it this is where the greatest era of disney animation starts and it's like just dramatic and triumphant and <laughs> Just so beautiful. It's and all it all leads into part
0: of your world, which is uh, the the best sort of starting out type song that they could possibly uh, use to, to to be their key.
7: Totally is, and I mean, and Menken would go, will go on to give us many of the best scores in Disney history. Yeah.
0: to Ariel when she's uh, exploring shipwrecks. Now, I had not realised this until we saw it with the commentary on and I was sort of focusing more on what was on screen rather than what was being said and heard. It's like a ship graveyard. There's like 12 ships down there, all wrecked. Consider of that. not sailing above there. <laughs> <laughs> it's just... It's, it's a graveyard. And um, uh, Ariel is an archaeologist of sorts. She's kind of fascinated with this this, this culture that she's sort of like picking out, uh, out uh, bits of wreckage of and uh, um, extrapolating from that and from the extremely flawed information fed to her by Scuttle, <laughs> what these people are like. The idea has been floating around recently that uh, this is actually an excellent uh, analogy for somebody in a transgender situation. I think it's applicable to that, but it's applicable much like Let It Go to a lot of other scenarios. For agree. Exa- yeah, for example, I really want to live in America. I really do. I have my entire life. So when Ariel's talking about what would I give, I'm thinking, what would I give if I could live in America? <laughs> um, less so now than when I first recorded that. Yeah... So many scenarios where this sort of, you know, grass is greener, um, it can almost be reduced to a sort of a shallow uh, coveting of, uh, of another lifestyle. But if you go back to the trans thing and you look at it as that Ariel is a human born in the body of a mermaid, it would stand absolutely to reason that she's been fascinated by this human kingdom since, uh, you know, birth and. And and feels genuinely out of place where she is to the point where when she has to decide to go there and stay there, it's not even really a choice for her. She doesn't really agonize over it too much. They never really make a point of her going, oh, but I'll have to leave all this behind. Even at the end, she's just, I love you, daddy, so much. Thank you for just letting me go. It's not a case of I'm conflicted about this. She knows where she belongs.
9: That was one of the things I noted about her response to the very trammelled lifestyle that she feels she lives, Um, that her, her frustration at her father having this idea of the ideal daughter that he wants her to be, you know, the youngest child who meets her obligations and is where she's supposed to be and doesn't go out of the area that she's been designated. Her response to that is not to try and force herself into the mold he's presenting her with and then eventually have to break out of it because she has no choice, which is Elsa's pattern. Ariel's is simply, this is not me. This is not my world. I don't feel comfortable here. She immediately starts looking for ways out of it. Um, and it's you know her responses are all geared towards getting to the place where she really feels she is supposed to be rather than trying to make herself fit in the place that she isn't supposed to be if that makes yeah. sense
0: yeah it's not about the conflict it's about the yearning
9: yeah yeah and that's part of what makes her very young i think yeah the uh, the response again i, I hopefully won't keep comparing her to Elsa. I'll save that for the princess episode. Um, But uh, Elsa's response is is more adult in a way and certainly more cynical because of, of what's happened to her in her early life. She turns it on herself and feels that she is the one that's wrong. Ariel is very certain that her... Path is the right one it's everybody else that's wrong for keep trying to nail her to this one that's that's not right for her
7: yeah that it really does feel like a more youthful mm. sort of perspective, I mean, not necessarily a wrong one, just one that is much yeah, more absolutely from, and, a, it's from a youthful mentality
9: yeah
0: it's gratifying as well that um, while she falls in love with eric it's not him that she suddenly wants to be part of the world of she's always wanted to be uh part of the human world and he's there so she's he's just kind of i like think you said sharon he's the first one she's actually looked at up close mm. yeah. so she's just like oh he's nice and then kind of gets a teenage crush fixation now it just so happens that he's a beautiful handsome uh kind prince he's not the smartest cat but <laughs> <laughs> he, he is a kind person with, with uh, good values. And, um, and so, you know, a, a decent, suitable uh, prince. And I was also we were thinking back. Princes get it bad in Disney. Prince Eric is so far the best prince we've seen. Look at the rest he of them. He
9: has got, lines, yeah. which is an improvement he, on most of them. He has a
0: discernible character.
7: <laughs> Yeah, the only people who get it worse maybe are like uh, step-parents, stepmothers yeah. specifically.
0: <laughs> you had better be part of the actual natural birth chain in,
7: <laughs> in Disney World. Because if
0: you are some form of substitute, there's going to be a, 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 a... Well, yeah, actually, George Claude Frollo, not a very good stepdad.
9: I don't think that it's quite right to say that... Oh, princess- hang on,
0: Carla and uh, Kerchak. They, they, oh, okay. they are the exception that proves the rule. Yes.
9: Um, I don't think that...
0: Oh, and Amphitryon and his wife in uh, Hercules.
9: I don't think it's necessarily that, that princes have it bad, as they don't get it. They don't have anything. Yeah. Nobody has really bothered to bring them in as fully functioning characters until even really after this, it's only the Beast. Yeah. He's he's really the first one. Beauty and the Beast, and this is possibly why I named this as one of my as one of my two favourite Disneys of all time. That Beauty and the Beast really is a double hander in terms of central characters. It is about the beast as much as it is about Belle.
8: Oh
0: eh le frog. Le Tiffragi
9: Indeed. Again. <laughs> that's that's a two-person film yeah it's about they, they both have an arc they both have a process to go through and eric has a little bit of one in this it's only small but it's there and the fact that i was able to pick out characterizing things about him and uh the way he changes from one perspective to another over the course of the film speaks volumes because there's no way i could i barely could have done that about Philip. And in fact, no, I couldn't do that about Philip.
0: Oh, if we want to split hairs, technically, Walt is a prince. He's a king-in-waiting, so the whole film is about his misadventures. Uh, that's,
9: that's not a princess story, so that's not the yeah. same thing.
0: Well, no, it's, it's a prince story, and there aren't many.
9: I'd oh. say that's more of a kid story.
0: Yeah. That's the thing, though. He's being taught by Merlin because Merlin knows he's going to be a king. It's one of those rare instances where um, he, he's a prince without knowing it.
4: Under the sea Under the sea Darling it's better down where it's wet And take it from me Up on the shore they work all day Out in the sun they slave away While well, we be voting full time to floating Under the sea <laughs> Down you <here laughs> or the fish is happy As after the waves they roll The fish on the land ain't happy it's hard cause they in the bowl But fish in the bowl is lucky They in for a worse fate One day when the boss get hungry
6: Yes, you go beyond the pay
4: But go under the sea? Under the sea Nobody beat us, try us and eat us in fricassee we want the land, folks loves to cook. Under the sea, we have to hook up. We got no troubles, life is the bubbles under the sea. Under the
8: sea.
4: Under the sea. Since life is sweet here, we got the be here naturally. Even the sturgeon and the They did it, the earth start to play. We got the spirit, you got to hear it under the sea. Play The flute, the top play the hop, the place, play the bass, and they sound the chop, the bass, play the brass, the chop, play the top, the flute is the duke of soul. Yeah. The way he can play the names of the strings, the chop, cracking on the blackfish, he sings his belt and his pride, they know where it's at, They know that blowfish, blow! Dee, 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 dee. It's music, to music me. me. What do they got? A lot of sand We got a hot and band Each little clown here Know how to jam here Under the sea Each little slug here Cutting a rug here Under the sea Each little snail here Know how to whale here That's why it's hotter uh, Under the water Yeah, we in luck here Down in the muck here Under the sea
0: But to return to Prince Eric, Ariel does not choose to be human so that she can be with Prince Eric. She decides to be human and it just so happens that Prince Eric is the man she decides she wants to marry. The, uh, the, t- the time limit on that is effectively you can be human and Ursula is the one who ties it all together and says, right, it's all to do with this guy. It's not actually Ariel's choice to actually tie it in with Eric, which is a neat little twist on it. It's especially neat if you consider the original story, which um, it's by Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, uh, the original story, she gets to the palace, and pretty much apart from the Calypso stuff, most of it plays out in much the same way. Um, she gets to the palace and there's wedding bells ringing and the prince is already getting married and that's it she becomes very sad and gets taken away by the daughters of the air to become sea foam but because of her good deeds she gets a soul which mermaids don't have not
9: quite think- no the the idea of the original story and actually this is one of the reasons that i was not massively enamored of the little mermaid initially the first few times i saw it it's, this is really one that's grown on me with repeat watchings yeah. um in the original version of the story basically the idea is that when mermaids die they turn into sea foam this is one of the reasons that she is longing to be human because she wants to have a soul she wants to be immortal so she and has an
0: existential dread of just becoming nothing
9: yes and so uh she does this deal with the sea witch gets so she mermaids, believes in nothing
0: so she's a nihilist.
9: She's not a nihilist. That
0: must be exhausting. <laughs> no, she's the opposite
9: of a <laughs> nihilist. So she does the deal with the sea witch. Uh, she tries to charm the prince. She ha- because she's without voice, it doesn't work. Epic fail. And yeah, epic fail indeed. Uh, and then when the prince marries someone else, she goes back out to sea. To die effectively. And at this point, um, the Daughters of the Air come and fetch her and say that although she hasn't, she, because she hasn't become human, she doesn't have a soul automatically. What the Daughters of the Air do is they earn themselves souls by doing good deeds. So they take her away to join them so that she can basically fly around the world doing good things for humans and in that way earn her immortality. So it is, it is kind of a happy ending. It's a bit bittersweet because she doesn't get the prince, but I always found it to be quite a positive yeah. look at things because it's, it doesn't just get handed to her on a platter. The idea is that she sacrifices for something but she sacrifices the wrong thing for the wrong thing. And this is actually a much better way of getting her soul because it means something to her because she's earned it.
8: At
0: this stage, the Disney musical, uh, as it was just forming, was not the time and place to suggest that story to a wide audience, including, you know, going down as low as three or four years old.
9: No, I That's agree. That's too
0: weighty not. and philosophical for it's, a Exactly.
9: School. It's very complex.
0: to. That's stuff to for sci-fi, really, show. now.
7: I would actually love to see that version of the story done by someone else at some point. Oh, yeah. That could, Guillermo del Toro. Right, someone actually probably has done a Oh, God, now I want that
8: film. Oh,
7: man. Now, <laughs> God now you've said it and it's real and we have to deal with it. Now we can't unsay it.
0: And, <laughs> oh, oh, could perhaps Doug Jones play one of the Daughters of the Air? You know, the way he played the Angel of Death in Hellboy 2. That would He's work. very good at that sort of stuff.
9: That's kind of how I envisioned them, actually. Angels, but extremely elongated. Yeah.
0: A lot can be mined of original fairy tales uh, done... It really has to be given the right tone for the right time by the right person. Because if you make it too grim at the wrong time and with just this really downbeat feel to it, it just is exhausting to watch. If you've ever seen Snow White, A Tale of Terror, it's, it's just a girl hangs out with seven regular sized chaps and then dies. It's horrible. <laughs> uh, although Sigourney Weaver is quite good as the Wicked Queen in that. But it's, it's very just real and uh, depressing um but that was the thing originally disney were going to do this ages ago like the 40s ages ago this was going to be their second film there was yeah, lots great. of concept art to do with the shipwreck and a lot of ocean related stuff so you can see how they ended up with pinocchio especially since the whole point of pinocchio is he has to do good deeds to get a soul same concept But they would have retained that original ending with a really downbeat kind of um, feel to it, which would have maybe wrecked the studio had they gone with that. If people had not liked that and turned against it and gone, you gave us a good ending with Snow White, but now
5: do
4: not
0: want
5: back in the 40s. I Um, don't
9: necessarily think, though, that a downbeat ending at that point would have been met with quite the ill that it would have been after Oliver and Company and uh, yeah. Aristocats and Fox and the Hound. Basically, Disney had got themselves at this yeah. stage a right. reputation for doing yeah. things that were ridiculously sickly sweet.
0: Yeah, Our People didn't love Fantasia, but that's because it's not really, it's not a crowd pleaser, really, is it? <laughs> You Fantasia kind of have to be geared up for it. You kind of have to have already seen Fantasia to get Fantasia.
9: Yeah, it's it's not really – Fantasia is not a heart grabber. It's not something that gives you – apart from possibly the Sorcerer's Apprentice, it doesn't have enough in the way of narrative flow to really get people from a story no, perspective. It's just a
7: sensory it's, experience exactly, more than anything and,
9: else. It's uh, And there's an intellectual appreciation to it and, and all that kind of thing, but it's not about telling a story.
0: So imagine, if you will, the forties version of the Little Mermaid. Imagine, say, if they'd done well. Say they did it in the fifties instead, and we did. We had Cinderella in eighty nine instead, and Little Mermaid back in nineteen fifty. It would have started with
8: Little Mermaid, you're the sweetest <laughs> in the sea,
0: with one of those close harmony choirs that they did, and the opening storybook. This film doesn't have an opening storybook.
9: Would she huh? have dressed goldfish?
0: It really should have had one. Would she have to? Yes, maybe some. But imagine Ariel back then. She'd have been sort of like... Oh, I do so wish I could be in the the, the world of humans. And she'd have been kind of ineffectual and maybe sort of kind of helped into it by the sea witch. She probably wouldn't have been anywhere near as... Well. Or maybe she would, because obviously you've got the Wicked Queen going on there. I I I'd she, really like to made... see this alternate reality version of Little Mermaid.
9: <laughs> I think they'd have made her much more like... Um, what's her name? Lady... Tremaine. Tremaine. Yeah. And, you know, Played she'd have been she'd much more serious yeah. and manipulative. Or, uh, no, because Ursula is incredibly manipulative. Not just, just less fun not than camp. Ursula, not basically. Fun. Oh,
8: yeah.
0: <laughs> that's, that doesn't, that's not to uh, um, disparage her performance, which was perfect for its time for, mm. for the oh, absolutely. Cinderella. Yeah. Uh, also, if you want Cinderella done with emotion, with polygons and emotions, if um, <laughs> you want done. With modern-day sensibilities, I, I'm kind of getting excited about this 2015 live-action Cinderella. You know, Kenneth Branagh directing, so it might be good. Not been excited about Cinderella ever, but maybe. Sidebar, saw it, loved it. So if Little Moment had been done back then, it would have kind of... I think that that, if it had been done in the Disney style back then, would have been massively popular then. Same as it is here. It's a it is a classic story. However, with a really downbeat ending in 1950, that was just after the wartime films. That was the one that had their company sunk.er Had the film flopped at that point, they were done. That was the one they were preparing for for years. So Cinderella really had to deliver the the wonderful fairy tale ending. And when people say fairy tale ending, I do not think it means what they think it means. <laughs> A lot yeah, of fairy tales don't end that well. Yeah, exactly.
9: What do so, I tell you? Fences.
0: So basically, Disney have a, throughout the 20th century kind of hijacked the very concept of fairy tales, and the fairy tale ending becomes the ending of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the Disney version. The ending of Cinderella, the Disney version. The ending of The Little Mermaid, the Disney version. The ending of Beauty and the Beast, the Disney version. And that suddenly is how fairy tales end, without you've learned something, uh, sort of, you know, and a downbeat sacrifice, things don't always work out.
7: (laughs) Moral of the story, don't go in the woods. but,
0: But in the 90s, suddenly you've got character arcs, and there is something sacrificed, and there is something learned. In this case, the sacrifice is Triton's.
2: Who loves us a name that's well? A quantum Antrina. A Restar. Tina. Adela. Adana. And then there is the youngest in her musical debut. A seventh little sister, we're presenting her to you. To sing a song, Sebastian wrote her
8: voice is like a bell. She's our sister, Ari
0: And I was discussing with uh, Sharon earlier today. Howard Ashman had to go back and rewrite the ending, because basically originally Triton just went whoop and turned her into a, a human, just through, you know, visually you could see he was sad about it, but he did it anyway. Ashman had to actually verbalize that. I was discussing how it would probably derail the movie, but they could have actually had a full discussion about that and, and really gone into the conflict, because Ariel's not conflicted about it, But Triton sure as hell is. Do I do this for my daughter just for what she wants, despite all the obvious dangers I can see? And then his ultimate decision is, I have to do this because it's what she wants, and I've got a sneaking suspicion it's also what she needs. That's a really great story, which doesn't necessarily mean that that wasn't told. That still happens in that short discussion he has with Sebastian. But, um that's really the sacrifice that's actually given at the end
9: there's a moment that connects with this that i think if you miss it you miss the point of the end scene and it and cuz again early viewings of this i really felt the end lacked something and that they they needed something more in there to make the connection between triton and his daughter mm-hmm. and and to make that agreement on his part to let her go mean more in the scene where he destroys her treasure trove.
0: Yeah.
9: um, And he's basically acting as In that moment, and this is not me saying that he is in the broader perspective, but in that moment, he is acting as a very controlling, abusive parent who is wrecking the things that their child has carved out for themselves. It's basically the equivalent of walking into your child's room and taking all of their drawings down off the walls and shredding them and throwing their toys out of the window for no reason other than that you want to teach them a lesson. after he's destroyed the statue...
0: or put it from the perspective of going into your son's room and ripping down all the pictures of, say, ballet that your son has all over his room and saying, I want none of this shit for you. You are not getting subsumed by that world of those people.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Ah? So something of that nature. And I think taken in isolation, we can agree that that is an absolutely horrendous thing to do. But after he's done that, Triton turns away and he walks away and he looks back and sees what this has done to Ariel and you can see the um, chagrin on his face. You can see how he, he, in that moment, feels he's done
0: the wrong thing. An immediate, sharp pang of regret.
9: Exactly. He can't take it back and so he just walks away. And we basically then don't really see him until the end of the film. Mm. But I think that is what motivates his willingness to uh, let Ariel go and make her own choices.
0: Yeah, that informs on his decision and so he doesn't really have to debate it. Exactly. (laughs) He's less conflicted.
9: That's right. And if you miss that moment, then you lose that connection between how he is behaving here and how he behaves at the end of the film. Mm.
7: It's an interesting it. la- layer to that that uh, that to that whole scene as well, and it's not just sort of a father saying, like, looking at his daughter and saying, you're kind of going down a route that I don't agree with and I won't have it. It's also a more, like, she is, I mean, he's the king, so it's still kind of coming from him a bit, but she is not only just disobeying his will, she's straight up breaking laws. She's, like, she is... To his mind, and he definitely views humanity as a terrible, dangerous thing. She is... Not just like kind of interested in like kind of the boy interested in ballet. He, it's he. It's like a father watching his daughter going out and doing something, and he perceives as incredibly dangerous, and he is terrified for her. Yeah. Uh, it, when, it, I don't know how much we really counted, but as I understand it, in one of the sequel movies that came later, direct to video, it's established that Ariel's mother was crushed by a human ship against the rocks. That like he, that, that's that's how his wife died, and since then, just he has perceived. like just humankind as nothing but a threat. And when you're seeing them basically fish up all of your subjects and eat them all the time, I guess it's easy to, it's easy to see why,
8: Mm.
7: but, uh, I I don't know. Having, having his lines in there, like contact between the human and mermaid world is strictly forbidden. Ariel, you know, that everyone knows that it's kind of like seeing like maybe a police, father talking to his kid about trying to like don't do this thing. It's breaking the law. I should be arresting you for this. Mm. Stop stop don't. hanging
9: out with Spider Man. I was just gonna
7: say <laughs> <laughs> Well done.
0: That's why I married you <laughs> 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 It's the police chief thing. Thanks to previous <laughs> us that one.
7: And and yeah, like it is definitely like they're the destroying of her room does totally feel like sort of a really abusive parent sort of just destroying all their stuff, destroying their the, their passion. But it's I, also a I t- love t- that t- the t- childish
0: has, response to smash up everything. It really it's, is. And, it's it's a it's a it's a desperate resting of. This is the most powerful man under the sea, and the only thing he has no power to do is change his daughter's mind.
7: Yeah, and I love the bit, just the bit of complexity that sort of adds to him. Just he, I feel like he really perfectly captures just the. Anger and the frustration and the love and the fear of a father and slash king completely unable to protect his daughter from what he perceives as being something incredibly dangerous. And and to his credit, when she takes this risk and goes and says, I'm going, I will make this deal with the sea witch and I will. And so I can go up and have this thing that I want and that I need. The results nearly... Like doom the entire ocean, because <laughs> <laughs> she's being played. She's part of a blackmail. Totally. Just, I mean, but it, there is genuine threat that comes from it. I don't know. I just i I really like Triton in that way. It, it does plenty of things that I would like. Obviously, say that's not good parenting, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but that's a lesson. That um, Musker and Clemens mentioned that they got a, a letter from a father who was at the time estranged from his daughter and got back together with her because he saw this film and it moved him to the yeah. point where he was like, I cannot believe this is how I came across.
7: Yeah, that's the thing, because he does learn. He, he comes around, he eventually, see, by the end of the film, in that scene, we see that he realizes as much as it may still be kind of an unknown, sort of scary thing to him, he realizes that his daughter needs this, and this is like, he, that he can't stop her, He and he should do what he can to help her and be there for her still. It's, and I, just the fact that he comes around, I think is just completely, completely redeems him. I just love the character.
0: Much like Wreck-It Ralph, and to a degree Beauty and the Beast, it's a daddy-daughter film. He may not feature prominently in it, but that's the crucial major emotions going back and forth between two people. It's not so much Eric and Ariel as Triton and Ariel. Part of your world. Let's go back a little bit here, all the way to part of your world. (laughs) The way that song is conveyed, it's impossible for me not to well up. But when Lyra saw it for the first time age, what, three? This would have been 2000, and we were still in Tunbridge Wells showing. So 2000. She was,
9: if she was in her uh, playpen, she would have been two years old. Two and a half. Yeah. Two and a half. We not stopped even three, using yeah. it when she was about two and a half.
0: Yeah. Uh, she was just about. Well, she was standing at this point, but she was inside the playpen, um, and and she was just sort of watching this scene play out. And the point, the the end, that sort of out of the sea. She started crying her eyes out. She didn't understand English at that point, but the visual language of, sh- of this girl wants something, but she is sad and can't have it, and then slowly sinks back down. So powerful.
7: Just that shot of her reaching up through a hole that she just yeah. like can't quite fit through. Yeah. Is, uh, I love it. In
9: fact, no, she must have been less than two. She turned two after we moved to Cranbrook.
0: Yeah. So like one and three quarters. We started out very early. First, I think the first animated film that we uh, showed her might have been...
9: Kiki's Delivery Kiki's Service. Delivery
0: Service. Yeah. Oh, man, nice. <laughs> she watched that thing again, We used
9: to again, put them again, on, because obviously she didn't understand the, the words anyway. We used to put the, um, uh, in the Japanese. Japanese films on in Japanese. Yeah. Yeah.
7: That's um, cool, good idea. And
0: Spirited Away, she liked that one as well. Mm. And so
9: she could get an Hulk idea of Castle. like the visual portrayal of story.
0: And Totoro. So then there's a storm and Ariel uh, saves um, Prince Eric and uh, any fans of 80s animation will recognize that the the dog is pretty much Schaefer. Yeah. Don't need to explain where that's from. You'll either know it or you won't. Um, (laughs) But then there's the reprise which I always forget until I see it again. And and this is Jodie Benson's wonderful voice coming through when she's sort of uh, uh, singing over the prince with the sunlight behind her and then You've get that uh, the bit on the rocks where it's, I don't know when I'll, I'll let her do this. but just that moment, that single moment there is welcome to the 90s folks. We are finally gonna get this one really right. And it just it didn't really that wasn't significant until later.
7: I mean it was obviously like the perfect <laughs> trailer shot so you'd definitely be seeing it like yeah. you'd definitely be seeing it all of those but oh man so I I don't want to ruin it with words it's too good <laughs> Yeah,
0: um, it's a shame this thing isn't a visual podcast but, um, but yeah. it would take me forever um, back I don't to, have just enough to,
7: visual the, materials
0: just I suppose a I could make this like a, a commentary tra- but it wouldn't match up no it's fine
7: <laughs> just a quick call back to the um Before the shipwreck, I do want to just another like props to Ellen Minkin score the fireworks cue. Like when Mm. when Ariel swims up to the surface to see just the uh, Prince Eric's ship at night with the fireworks going off. That like it's the imagery helps a lot too. But that little short tiny bit of thirty second score just always gives me chills as well. It's just another one of my favorite little bits. Yeah, that's a
0: very much sort of prepare thyself moment. Yeah, yeah. Very special. Now, when I was a kid, obviously, uh, nine years old, a nine-year-old boy, Little Mermaid, not a great fit. So I watched this on video quietly at home. (laughs) Fell in straight-out love with Ariel. Kept it very much to myself. Um, Just didn't really, couldn't really talk about this at school. Kept the whole Disney thing on the down low. Thank God they made um, uh, Aladdin Definitely a boys film. So basically that that uh, Katzenberg was peddling is absolutely true when you hit that age group in terms of that boys can't really talk about seeing Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast, but they can talk about Aladdin. Um, And girls can probably talk about Aladdin and that way it's probably a safer bet. And, you know, you've got Jasmine in there as a princess. You're covering all bases, but if, this is a hard film to like when you're a kid, so there was obviously a slightly rockier road for me to actually loving it. And I didn't really love it, love it until way later when I realized how important it, it was and how just it got all of these things right.
7: Absolutely. I, I. This is probably one of the... I wouldn't say it's probably the first movie I saw in theaters, but it's one of the earlier theater memories I have as a kid. And I've. it was... Always present during my childhood, and I saw it a ton of times, and I always really liked it. It, I didn't completely fall in love with it until just watching it a few weeks ago again because I hadn't seen it in years, and mm. it, I mean, it's one of my favorites now. It's, I tie it with Beauty and the Beast now. Yeah, I, like, I adore that. this movie now.
0: Also, most likely, this uh, Ariel and Gene Gray, why I love them redheads. <laughs> most likely, um, it Under the Sea hurt. can't not mention Under the Sea, I won an Oscar. Wonderful, oh, yeah. like, shake your booty type music. <laughs> Impossible. I mean, I, I'm sure there's people out there who don't like Under the Sea, but they probably haven't listened this far into the podcast, so we're in good company at this stage. It was important that they got kind of like radio play stuff. You know, you stick this this sort of thing on, and it's, it's a very inoffensive song in terms of like, you know, it's... It, it, it's the kind of thing that people is very likable and it's very uh, accessible and instrumental to um, possibly getting a few more boys into the cinema. Cause they were like, well, you know, you got this great fun crab here. It's not all just princess stuff.
7: I do love that Sebastian in his passion to try to convince Ariel to stick around, gets so caught up in his <laughs> song. That, <he> <laughs> that she wanders off and
8: he doesn't notice.
7: Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems very musician like
9: by the way yep. this attitude of the the whole it's difficult for boys to like the princess type disney's and to talk about the fact that they like the princess type disney's mm-hmm. as far as i'm concerned that is the next barrier i'm going to be attempting to crush that's it's it's not fair and it's hampering male emotional development and it needs sorting out
0: is that Agreed. gonna be if you're gonna be a one policy tweeter? That's gonna be your thing, yeah. Yes. Show your <laughs> sons princesses.
9: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay. I can get behind that. I'm um, yeah. I'm I'm with you. Um, after the destruction, Ariel has a choice, and again, it doesn't. It, she takes almost no time to actually make uh, make it. It's it's Flotsam and Jetsam who come along and and give it to her. Uh, but in the words of the Oracle. But you've already made that choice. You just have to understand why you made it. But Ariel doesn't actually have to trouble herself with understanding why. As we've said before, this is who she's supposed to be. And as as we've already said, Triton gives her very little choice but to just walk away. If Triton had just said, Ariel, this is your family, these are your people... What be the word? Not just we'll miss you, but... Um, can you really say goodbye to to all of us? We'll we'll let you go if if you if you want to, but we we don't want to lose you. So uh, you know, I'll leave this decision to you. <laughs> kind of like Charles in uh, um, Days of Future Past. If he'd done that, then there's a conflict for Ariel. Then there's a sense of can I really leave all this behind, but they don't concern themselves with that because, as far as Ariel's concerned, she's a teenager, she is going straight forwards and not looking in either direction. And she's very, um, it's that passion and that uh enthusiasm for life, uh, even at the expense of all logic, that kind of makes these this kind of story compelling and frustrating at the same time. <laughs> it's very energetic if uh, you know the old ponder too much, the young rush in too much. There's probably an optimum age where you can balance it. (laughs) 28. (laughs) We're well past it. (laughs) And then we get to meet Ursula. Played by Pat Hingle? Pat Rudge? Pat Carroll.
9: Pat Pat Hingle.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was Commissioner Gordon in Tim Burton's (laughs) Batman.
9: sure he'd have made a fantastic Ursula, but...
0: Oh, hold on, hold on. Ursula the Sea Witch. <sighs> this is how you do a villain, folks. <laughs> you make her threatening and malicious, but entertaining as all hell. And you give her a fairly straightforward motivation and little hints at, that she might have actually had Uh, um, some sort of standing in the palace. Even, like Sharon and I were speculating, maybe she's Triton's sister. She's been banished. But you don't necessarily need to go into it. She's a witch. It's better if you don't go into it. Mysterious is good. Unless you're going to be doing a film about her. (laughs) In which case, maybe go into her in more detail. Which,
9: frankly, I would have liked to see that in the sequel to The Little Mermaid.
0: We may yet see... Ursula as a film. Christ, imagine how expensive that would be, filming underwater, a voluptuous squid woman. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah. <laughs> they can't even commit to Aquaman. So yeah, she's. Uh, there's so many good things about Ursula. Um, right. I, when they were making this, obviously Batman was in development. It doesn't seem like just a mistake that she has the Joker's smile, specifically the Jack Nicholson Joker's smile. And she has the candor of the, in a couple of years time when he came along, the Mark Hamill Joker in terms of, uh, you know, you could pretty much imagine Joker singing, poor unfortunate souls, in pain, in need. Maleficent is, in her own head, the hero of her own story, and this sort of like, um, she can be um, summed up in her little soliloquy at the beginning where she's like, wasted away to practically nothing. And yes, she's monologuing, as all, you know, uh, fairly um, shallow villains tend to do, but there is something very, be the word? theatrically entertaining about her in a way that most other Disney villains had not up to this point managed.
7: Her monologuing is... It, it strikes me less as supervillain monologuing and more like Shakespeare villain monologuing. Like, <laughs> yes, I
0: am like, a plain dealing villain.
7: Yeah, no, like, she strikes me totally as yeah Richard III just addressing the audience, because no one else is there, talking to the audience. Here's who I am. I... I can the situation of these people. Murder I just just watch me do this. Yes. Sort of but like and I, I I love those totally.
0: There was a deleted scene at the beginning where she was going to be um sort of uh, talking to one of the guys that got gets turned into one of those grub things and saying, "Well, you were supposed to bring me a, a, a white lily." Pity they're out of season. And then it's like, ah-ha-ha, ha, and he she signed a contract, and so she, you know, she's got him. And it's effectively like watching a mafia guy break somebody's legs. I'm really glad they took that out, because if you start off seeing that, there's less of a conflict there. Now, you know Ursula's got sort of, you know, ill intentions towards uh, Ariel, but when she goes, go ahead and sign the scroll, part of you's saying, don't sign the scroll, Ariel, you know nothing good's going to come of it. But at the same time, you're like, maybe you'll be okay? Maybe she's going to do something else with the voice, but Ariel will be all right. Her
1: daddy
7: will love that. That's what I love about my wife brought this up while we were watching with Ursula. Ursula doesn't keep anything secret about her, about what she's doing to Mm -hmm. Ariel. She's very forefront. Here's what's going to happen. You are going to pull this off or you are mine. And here's your handicap. And I mean, she's obviously going to play the get, play the system a bit later when Ariel actually starts looking like she might succeed. Yeah. But she's very forward about here is the devil's deal you're making. Tilda, mm. so you must sign in blood. And Ooh. that song is, and the whole sequence that goes with it is so great. It, I can't remember who says it in the in the commentary that it. I guess it was Ashman saying that it kind of has a three acts. On its own, there's mm. just the initial kind of temptation of "Here's what I do, I help people." There's the "Come on, just sign it, let's do this." Come on, just trying to convince her, and then finally the triumphant ha, "I won!" All right, transform. <laughs> and I love the build throughout the entire song up to mm. the little quick, all the quick cuts as Ariel's taking the pen and about to sign it, and Ursula is looking triumphant. It just, it's so good. I love the sequence.
0: Flatsome Jetsum, now I've got our boys. The boss is on a
7: roll. The closest th- equivalent is probably the uh, Princess and the Frog uh, oh yeah, like, voodoo he's literally the voodoo saying man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes, but also thing. one of my favorite
0: villain song sequences. Similar, I suppose, to "Be Prepared" I mean, in, in terms of Scar, like saying, "I am Richard III. This is what I'm literally going to do." Yeah, regicide. But yeah, the, the, a lot of uh, her uh, mannerisms were actually um, uh, Pat Carroll borrowed from um, Ashman himself. So, no more talking, singing, zip and the uh, life's full of difficult choices in it and just she's got so much little nastiness things sort of coursing through her like I said the best kind of villain because you want more of her she's like Loki you just want more of her so when she turns into a giant thing at the end it's like oh I didn't literally mean more of her. <laughs> <laughs> I would have honestly preferred a big, long shouting match at the end. That would have been great. I think my my favorite, like, six-second moment is, um, but on the whole, I've been a saint. And she pulls this creep around her head to be, like, sort of this Mother Teresa kind of uh, nun's habit thing and then turns it into, like, a, uh, what do they called it? A uh, belly go,
9: dancing scarf. A
0: belly dancing scarf and sort of belly dances and sort of uh, shakes her enormous capacious behind. You know, despite the fact that she's huge, they maintain a, a very kind of shapely, womany kind of... She's not disgusting. Like I said, voluptuous. She's almost kind of uh, Rubenesque. What, there is
9: right? a... There's a fantastic sensuality about yeah, her that I, it. I love,
0: and the whole song is a belly dance. Mm, it's got the kind of thing going on.
9: The fact that she's set up—I mean, the, the interaction between Ariel and Ursula is one of the things that I find most fascinating about this film because uh, Ariel is trying to carve her own way in the world, and Ursula has done. Mm. and it's almost like it's it's representative of kind of this this female trap that the only way you can really be your own woman is if you go over to the dark side and embrace the, you know, this is the power that's within you. Oh, but by the way, it's incredibly um, manipulative and horrible and requires that you hurt other people in order to be able to get what you want. And that that kind of manipulation and, and Ursula's trying to spread it. She's trying to get Ariel to behave that way when she's talking about, you know, how but how will I tell him who I am? How will I explain to Eric what what's happened? She's like, well, you know, you, you can smile at him and you've got that body language. And, and she's, she's trying to get Ariel to behave Come like her. Come over to the dark side? <laughs> because, well, because she knows it won't work. She knows it's not going to work in this scenario. The Ariel is being set up to fail here. That is never in doubt. Um, it's all the idea of, of getting, her to get ariel to give away what she does have get her to give away what her true power is her ability to communicate her voice her singing take all that away and you know that's the thing of value and that you should loathe ursula for that
8: yeah
9: but it's all put across in such a um a full-bodied, no pun intended, over-the-top manner that you can't help but love her a little bit for it. because she is raw. She is this incredibly sensual, powerful witch, and I love those characters.
0: She may have lied to Ariel. she never lied to us. she's even lied to Ariel, but yeah, no, yeah, she's because she's confided in us. And not even necessarily like talked to her henchmen, which is what Bond villains tend to do. She's actually pretty much broken the fourth wall when she's doing her little monologue thing at the, uh, at the beginning. As you say, it's Shakespearean. And so because she's laid that out for us, it's like, watch what happens when
7: I dupe this rube.
0: And, and so it's kind of like we're in on the joke.
7: Yeah, a, well, what thing, did yeah. you expect? She yes. told you what she was going to do. Totally. Yeah, she never lies. She doesn't play fair, but she doesn't lie.
9: And yeah. later on as well, when she's uh, playing the girl that turns up with Ariel's voice oh, yeah. oh, no. and it goes for? to...
7: Vanessa, Vanessa. Vanessa.
9: Vanessa. When she's in the cabin, she sings but very briefly. I think she only gets a couple of lines, but she almost gets her own I Want song where mm. she's talking about what she will get if her scheme works or, as far as she's concerned, when her scheme works.
7: Yeah, you were saying... There's uh, a great okay. Ursula impression by Jodie Benson in... <laughs> sort of, yeah. Not imitating the voice, just the tone, kind of the, the <laughs> sort of laughter. When um, we, uh, I, I, it didn't occur to me that it was actually Jodie Benson singing that. I don't know why until yeah. this, this last time viewing it, but it's great.
0: And when she's uh, being attacked by the uh, the fi- the fishes and birds at the uh, uh, the wedding, all that screeching raucousness—that's all Jodie Benson as well, misusing <laughs> Ariel's voice. It's a lona.
3: The only way to get what you want is to become a human yourself. Can you do that? My dear sweet child, that's what I do. It's what I live for, to help unfortunate merfolk like yourself, poor souls with no one else to turn to. I admit that in the past I've been a nasty. They weren't kidding when they called me well a witch. But you'll find that nowadays I've mended all my ways, repented, seen the light, and made a switch. True, yes. And I fortunately know a little magic. It's a talent that I always have possessed. And here lately, please don't laugh, I use it on behalf of the miserable, lonely, and depressed, pathetic, poor, unfortunate souls in pain. In need This one longing to be thinner That one wants to get the girl And do I help them? Yes, indeed Those poor unfortunate souls So sad, so true They come flocking to my cauldron, crying spells, Ursula, please And I help them? Yes, I do Now it's happened once or twice Someone couldn't pay the price And I'm afraid I had to break them across the gold Yes, I've had the odd complaint, but on the whole, I've been a saint to those poor, unfortunate souls. Have we got a deal?
2: If I become human, I'll never be with my father or sisters again. But you'll have
3: your man. <laughs> Life's full of tough choices, is <laughs> Is one more thing. We haven't discussed the subject of payment. But I don't have... I'm not asking much. Just a token, really. A trifle. What I want from you is... Your voice.
2: But without my voice, how can I... You'll have your looks. Your pretty
3: face. And don't underestimate the importance of a body language. Ha! The men up there don't like a lot of blabber. They think a girl who gossips is a bore. Yet on land it's much preferred for ladies not to say a word. And after all, dear, what is idle prattle for? Come on, they're not all that impressed with conversation. True gentlemen avoid it when they can. But they don't assume and fawn on a lady who's withdrawn. It's she who holds her tongue who gets her man. Come on, you poor unfortunate soul.
8: Go ahead,
3: make your choice. I'm a very busy woman, and I haven't got all day. It won't cost much, just your voice. Your poor, unfortunate soul. It's sad, but true. If you want to cross a bridge, my sweet, you've got to pay the toll. Take a gulp and take a breath and go ahead and sign the scroll. Got some jets and now I've got her, boys. The boss is on a roll. This poor, unfortunate uga come winds of the Caspian Sea <laughs> <laughs> That brings usglo set sick next laryngitis voce to me.
0: But then, uh, in if you want to get really physics-based about this, Ariel suddenly turns into a, a, a girl that far down at the bottom of the sea. She would either, A, drown, or B, when she goes to the surface within seconds in enough time to catch a breath, get the bends. Which, if you've ever done scuba diving, you'll know all about and is horrible. Um, but of course that doesn't happen because it's Disney. So, uh but when she's on the beach and suddenly having to communicate with visuals rather than speaking, suddenly it's an extra challenge for the animators, which is a doubly um, appropriate that this is their first one out of the gate for like, right, we're going to really step up our game here. Now we're going to make you love this character and she can't even speak in this lovely voice and she can't even sing in this lovely voice. And what we didn't realize until we'd been uh, uh, watching all the extra materials is they've done something very similar to uh, what they did before in the in uh, films like Sleeping Beauty. They have reference uh, materials to um, get a live action actress to pose and uh, go through the movements uh, to basically be aerial kind of like a Stone Age version of performance capture. It's not motion capture. She's not tied up with a bunch of um, different sensors or anything. She's just performing on camera in the shots that the animators need to actually see what a woman's face is um, in in this scenario. And they got an improv artist named Sherry Stoner in. And I didn't realize how much of Ariel is from Sherry Stoner. Until I'd seen her face and her mannerisms and her great big wide eyes. And I'm like, oh my God, this is this girl that I kind of fell in love with when I was like nine. And it's actually a woman. (laughs) And now I'm, she's way too old and so am I. But, um, (laughs) uh, But every time you get that sort of close up on Ariel's face and she's sort of like trying to express herself or she's like got her wide eyes when Sebastian's saying, "And don't you shake your head at me. And, um, when she blows her hair out of her eyes and sort of like that, that's all sherry stoner, and there's so much of Ariel in this original footage
7: it it really is like as much as Ariel comes from Benson's vocal performance uh, sherry stoner's physical performance, especially for all the time that Ariel spends on land, mm. is just invaluable, just super useful I mean animators now will still. They film themselves acting stuff out all the time yeah. for reference and that this is basically doing a similar uh a very similar thing but that disney did but they would actually pull in actors to do it which i think i would love to see animators don't like doing it but i would love seeing more animation studios actually do that yeah more often these days because as much as we animators like to think of ourselves as kind of actors and we kind of are in a different sort of way we're often not as great at it nearly so much as these people who are actual legit actors and actually i believe they did some of that on rango uh they had all the cast in and they actually acted the film out and uh used that not not literally they weren't like motion capturing them at all but they used it all for reference
0: when you are told about it after the fact, you can then look back on the film and go, Wow, they really were expressive. That'll be why. Another one they use Sherry Stoner for, she was also Belle in Beauty and the Beast.
9: It's a very specific type of actor though. If you look, they they are uh, they often use I think Sherry Stoner was a was she an improv actor? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So so she was uh theatrically trained but not necessarily in specifically play performance which is different again see this is there's so many different ways of getting uh, ideas and performances across and I think as time's gone on and actors who work primarily in, Film and, I mean, TV is slightly different again, but film and TV is very different to theatre acting. You have to have a completely different set of skills and a completely different way of perceiving your performance from inside. With theatre, you need to be able to kind of project yourself out and see how you're coming across, but everything's got to, you know, you've got to be able to reach the back of the room. With what you're doing if you do that in front of a film camera it's totally not going to work it's going to look utterly fake your movements will look all out of proportion and the way you're speaking you can't you have to get the emotions across in a very different way because you can't do that kind of very quiet internal performance on a theater stage and expect anybody but the first two rows to know what's going on Mm. so it it's a a way of putting things across that has to be learned differently for each medium. And what uh, Sherry Stoner was doing when we watched all the the filming of the reference material, and it's very similar to what the girls were doing in the very old reference material for Snow White and Alice in Wonderland. They were almost becoming the cartoons, for want of a better word, themselves. Everything that they did was so exaggerated and so... Um, it seemed so over the top and very, very stylized. But when that's translated into animation, it works brilliantly because you suddenly have this incredibly visual way of communicating the emotions of these characters. And because you're, you're slightly distanced from them in terms of them being human, you're not necessarily looking for the same uh, facial cues that you would be on a person in a live action.
7: That is actually absolutely accurate, pretty much 100% of the way through. Yeah, one of the key principles of animation that the Disney artists kind of discovered and found was exaggeration. You really need to to make that subtle kind of stuff. You can still have some subtle stuff in there, but you need to make it read clearly mm. and be easy to see and so it's going to require a bit of exaggeration you really need to push that expression just a little bit more a little bit further to make it really communicate and read in a pencil and paper drawing with this character and so yeah when you see a very kind of stagey big super exaggerated animated performance from these reference actors when you see it on an animated character which they've like kind of tweaked and the animators have kind of adjusted to work really well with this particular character probably toned down certain things but amplified other things it feels totally right. Like one of the reasons I think that bringing a physical actor like Dick Van Dyke in for Mary Poppins Mm. is somebody who has to interact with a bunch of very, with a bunch of animated characters. You need somebody who can embody that kind of physical animated, big exaggerated acting. So he, so it feels like it all fits together and he, and they can belong together and that them interacting doesn't feel weird. And that's, I think a lot of the same thing you're getting with these Reference actors for these Disney films. They're really being directed to go big. And they're pulling in people who can go big and exaggerated. And it's, yes, the expressions they're hitting and the uh, physical gestures they're doing are really exaggerated and big and stagey and kind of improv acting. But they read immediately and you immediately know what the expression is. And there's no subtlety, especially in 2D. In 3D, you can get a bit more of it. But yeah. 2D is really hard but it
9: has to it's it's like the music it has to communicate something emotional very quickly it has to use mm-hmm. a shortcut to be able to get that across and I'll tell you something else as well that I noticed they don't Waste movement everything those characters do every hmm. motion every gesture means something they're not just bouncing up and down on the spot because of you know we want it to look dynamic we oh want i know, know what
0: you're thinking of motion. right now
9: it's everything means something
0: i know what you're thinking of a particularly awful movie we've seen with terrible 3d animation which we won't even mention on this podcast but it's awful we might talk about it elsewhere, but Dan, you know what we're talking about.
7: I do. yeah, yeah that, that's that's the thing animation. you're completely directing the viewer's eye yeah. at any time. if the it there's every motion should have some significance or be having making the viewer look at a certain part of the screen, every ex, you only want them to change expression. You want that expression change to be noticed and to mean something and to communicate a thought mm-hmm. or a change in feeling, and it, just a whole bunch of noise and movement is super distracting and it doesn't actually communicate anything and it's just and it's hard to watch. It's playing and on that improv- movie is really hard to watch.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's playing on improv, but um, the the actual, especially when Ariel has no voice, this is the tenets of this is the tenets of mime, a style of self expression uh, in art which has limited. Uses, but in this case is very useful as reference points. As you say, every single movement has to be calculated, not mechanical, but it needs to feel like an organic thing that that person would do to convey an emotion or a thought, especially if they can't speak. Um, And if you look at her performance as Belle, it's completely different. I had to double check. It's definitely the same person. But she's acting in a completely different way to uh, to uh, Ariel. They're, 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 they're very different characters. Fans of Sherry Stoner may, of course, know she also created and voiced Slappy Squirrel, the grumpy retired cartoon character from Animaniacs.
7: I did not know that. That's awesome. <laughs> she toured
0: Comic-Con with Bruce Tim.
7: Oh, man. Yeah, It's this is a little bit like workshop animator stuff, but animators are sort of like actors that work in the reverse fashion they look from the outside in they look at a performance and try to discern exactly what does that meaning what does that move communicate what does that stance communicate what does that expression communicate and it's kind of using that to reverse engineer emotion and action and the way we behave to try to be able to use those tools to communicate a performance whereas an actor like the last thing you need to be thinking of is what you look like you need to be feeling you need to be in the moment and that i mean that's how spontaneous just performances come from that. Otherwise, it feels like uh, it just feels wrong. It feels calculated. It feels stagey and yeah. fake. And so, yeah, I think that's where pulling in actors to shoot our to to shoot our reference, whether we're going to be directly copying it or not, even if it's just going to be some inspiration for a character, I think is I think it could be a super valuable thing that I think it really couldn't hurt more animation studios to try doing.
0: That's how you can tell a skilled mime from an unskilled one, by the way. How yeah. natural it looks for them to uh, be maintaining those movements. Um, back to everything wrong with the Little Mermaid in six seconds or less. How come Ariel refuses to use all other forms of communication, including writing in English, which she knows because that's what Ursula's contract is written in to express to the prince. It was definitely me on the beach. I've lost my voice. She starts to mime it, and Eric goes, oh, you've been through the wars. And then it's like, right, let's not bother trying to explain this one again. I'll just stare at him for two days. (laughs) There's an awful lot of time that we don't get to see with Ariel moping around in the palace, not doing much. But again, it doesn't ultimately matter because uh we can just construe that prince eric is thick and there's not much paper and pens in the in the palace i don't know sharon uh, construed prince eric was illiterate probably not but even so she could just ask to speak to what's that guy grimsby grimsby yeah either way i mean like i i actually acted out in front of lyra um i have lost my voice it's possible to do. <laughs> but anyway, if you, if you explain too fast, you don't get a film. And unfortunately, you do get a film, because there's like a an ending which could only be described as a die-hard ending? <laughs> okay, well, let's just go back a bit. We segue into the Kiss the Girl sequence from their uh, Time on the Town... There's this whole sequence where they go out And the carriage is absolutely packed with information One of them, the establishing shot of the town Appears to be a a tribute to that shot in Pinocchio Where there's all that life suddenly bursting out of the uh, town
7: Is it like the establishing day shot when he's about to walk to school? (laughs) It's around about the time when Honest John turns up Right,
0: okay, Yeah. yeah So then we get the kiss the girl sequence Which is wonderful, again
9: kind of got me most about this one was not anything to do with eric it was more the fact that sebastian is now going all out to help her
0: yeah that's true he has a complete turnaround he goes from uh being uh mostly terrified for his own life and also a little bit affronted that ariel would leave behind all of her sea bound um brethren to actually i just want this girl to get what she wants which is kind of the whole audience is caught up in the same thing
7: yeah, her his that initial little uh, when she first is just up on the beach in human form and all that. Just his turnaround really is kind of that moment in desperation where he's like, "Okay, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? I'm going to go back. I, I I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this." And like, okay, Ariel, come on, we have to go back and fix this. We'll we can we can still salvage this. You'll we can go home and you can be normal and you'll and just you'll be just just
0: be mis- just be miserable, miserable for the rest
7: of your life. life. Yeah, it just kind of realizes it's like uh that that's not at all what she wants and that's not a solution mm. for her. And I think it kind of clicks for him there like uh how much she needs this.
0: It is possible to watch this film and get all cynical about it and go, "Well, like, for God's sake, you selfish cow, just go back to under the sea and do what you're supposed to do. You're a princess, for God's sake." But it's also easy to go, "Well, just let the girl have what she wants. Clearly she wants to be a human part of that world." is it, it, frankly, it could broker peaceful negotiations between the merfolk and the people like Game of Thrones.
9: (laughs) I'm sorry, where was the peaceful negotiation in Game of Thrones?
0: There's no such thing. Never never trust peaceful negotiation. They'll start playing the, the, uh, what's it called? The Reigns of of Castamere. Castamere. The Reigns of Castamere. (laughs) (laughs) about which we
9: do not speak
0: interestingly enough I saw Ever After recently which is a uh, Drew Barrymore um, uh, Cinderella story from the late 90s that's kind of like Cinderella without magic plus Game of Thrones there's a lot of uh, like, is, sort yeah. of um, family related power play stuff and Angelica Houston is Lady Tremaine that's, that's pretty good if you want to prepare for the whole Cinderella thing coming up next year
5: Poissons, les poissons, how I love les poissons, love to chop and to serve little fish. First I cut off their heads, then I pull out their bones, ah mais oui, ça c'est toujours délire. Les poissons, les poissons. (laughs) 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 With the cleaver, I hack them in two. I pull out what's inside, and I serve it up. I've got a love little fishes, don't you? Here's something for tempting the valet. Prepared in the classic technique. First pounds if the fish with the man Then you slash through the skin, give their belly a slice. Then you rob some folding, cause that makes it taste nice. Zoot I have missed one. Sacrable, what is this? How on earth could I miss such a sweet little succulent crab? Keldomash, what a loss! Here we go in the sauce. Now some flour, I think. Now I'll stuff you with bread, don't hurt. Cause you're dead, and you're certainly lucky you are. Cause it's gonna be a hot, inmadic, silver pot.
0: And then we get the introduction of Vanessa, and she's all raucous and horrible version of Judy Benson, um, doing her best, Ursula. And, um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I don't know what the original ending was going to be, but it wasn't going to be this. Katzenberg had just seen uh, Die Hard and said, we need an ending more like that. Something big, something punchy, uh, a battle of some kind. And as a result, Ariel gets a lot less to do at this point. At the point where she she gets in and almost by accident, because the um, animals and fish... It's kind of like Cinderella, the the critters that like Ariel are now helping her out and basically get her her voice slash glass sip, slip. It's the same thing. It's sort of it's it flies across the floor, it flies through the air and then smashes. But in the case of Cinderella, it was like oh I got the other one here. But in the case of this, it's like got my voice back. It's totally me. And then she's thus out of it because after that she gets a fishtail back, drops into the ocean, gets caught regarding the whole um, uh, signing of the scroll and the movie is kind of derailed a little bit the the story is that kind of derailed a little bit I mean, it isn't not enough to ruin it but enough that if it was done these days you'd ask you it would be um made remark of that the character sort of flops at the end of it is that fair uh,
8: mm.
0: <laughs> she That's starts well it, it 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 falls upon triton to um capitulate with Ursula for the sake of his daughter. And again, he doesn't have any choice at this point. He isn't even thinking about it. He's not thinking Ursula's going to become a tyrant. He gives her the crown just for Ariel. That's how blinded he is. This is like Bartlett. He should give his crown over to John Goodman. Suddenly comes in and goes, yeah, I'm the loner at this stage, just so you can't blackmail King Triton. And it, asks, feels, I
7: mean, it doesn't feel... I don't feel like any of the characters start doing anything... Out of character at that point. Like it may, maybe it could would have been better or worse. Who knows with a different kind of ending. That was less of a big action conclusion. But it all still feels kind of right. I mean, ursula all wa- got what she wanted. Yeah. She won through... And I suppose there was never any doubt that
0: Ursula would would uh, manipulate events until she got what she wanted. So I suppose exactly, and it correct. was and it
7: was close, but she did win. She got her, she got her, but like, ace in the hole that yeah. she was then immediately go and use against Triton. Does so up to gets that point. What she I ultimately think it's all wanted, solid, which yeah. is gets gets that this, Triton's crown, the source. Yeah, just the source of and Trident. power over the entire ocean. Oh, I
0: love the bit where she gets the trident and bites her lip and goes Ooh, like she's yeah, just got this power back. Her long like, Not much back, but she's just got this power she's wanted forever.
7: Yeah, and then, I mean, from there, it's not immediately, I got all the power, now I'm going to get huge. It's <laughs> Are you sure? Because that's what it looks like. No, no, because, no, no, no. well, okay, she's gets the power, she's immediately trying to to control de- the ocean. destroy Ariel, just just control just start asserting control. Eric shows up and start and starts attacking her. Ariel is Ariel attacks as well. she ends up destroying her minion pet things mm. and then goes oh, like, yeah, she then goes it. blood rage. and like I think her going big is more like these two. Are like, I have won, these two suck. (laughs) (laughs) And I have all the power of the ocean right now. I am going to wield this power because I control everything. Yeah. It's kind of berserker power mode. And she's a big theatrical character. She would do a big theatrical thing, I think, when she has all the power and can't see any possible consequence or or potential way of losing. Okay, I do well, if there's just, one thing yeah. that I don't like the Ariel's it's that Ariel of the sea
0: cowering and Eric has to basically do the stabbing with his giant penis ship.
7: Yeah, that's the one thing that it's just that Ariel loses a bit it's not Ariel really winning the day there. I don't think it kills it especially because she's a character that has taken so much agency over her life throughout the entire story. And especially compared to any other Disney princess character before this. Yeah. But it is one weakness with this with this conclusion that I would I think it could be just like it just a little bit better and work just a little bit better if that were structured in a different way somehow.
0: If Eric had at the point where he stabbed her with the ship gone, yipikay. Th- it, it's possible they could have figured it out so that something happened where Ariel and Eric worked in tandem doing something that they had figured out earlier in the film. I suppose that's just as cheap, I suppose, to foreshadow that and then have them use that at the end. But I suppose at the same time, Eric does need to kind of win his spurs and become a a character worthy. of. You know, he's thick, but he can at least be um, uh, willing enough to, uh, to perform brave and aggressive acts in order to save the woman he loves.
7: He is a sailor. This is the thing he knows how to do. And Ursula is as much at fault for her own destruction as anyone else for creating a maelstrom that brings all the sunken ships to the surface and hoisted by does... her own
1: petard. Who would have thought Ar- it?
7: Yeah, and Ariel had been—I mean, she Ariel effectively destroyed the minions by, like, by uh, throwing off Ursula, like attacking Ursula and throwing off her aim when she was about to destroy Eric. Yeah. It just kind of sucks that she then, as soon as Ursula like goes enormous that ariel kind of runs out of things she can do yeah she's stuck the bottom. that's just the one thing that i wish they found some way for her to contribute a little bit more even if eric was the one who still did the killing blow just ariel yeah, maybe, not being maybe totally a- helpless, Eric's sort of stuck device. at the bottom
0: of the sea uh, no way to get out ariel with her extremely powerful fishtail gets into the surface enough time for him to strike the killing blow and- yeah,
7: just even something like that would totally just giving her one little extra thing to do I just a bit more of a contribution to that final battle would be great.
0: Oh, I don't know. Like like with an incredible like like dolphin fast powering through the water, launches herself out of the water, holding Eric and flings him at the sea witch with his harpoon until he buries it in her chest.
7: So what, what is that? Grim
0: but uh, cool. uh... fastball special. Also just, Prince Eric uh, gets the bends.
7: Just Iron Man throw me. <laughs> 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 Um, yeah, it's it doesn't break it it's just like just a little bit of a, it's a like all right b plus there was a little more on this spot you could could have taken it just a little further but
0: I, it would have been even cooler actually if the ship had wheeled around and crashed into this giant octopus creature and had zero effect huh
7: Yeah, you get it? I get what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) Alright.
0: Folks, watch uh, uh, Daniel's uh, video on how they can't get Cthulhu right to understand (laughs) what I'm talking about there. But you probably already got it. Um, And that's it. And then you you get the um, uh, the sacrifice at the end from Triton and uh, the lovely kind of ending. And uh, Ariel just says thank you and then they use caps to sort of like uh, draw out of that and there's a lovely sort of happy wedding ending. But really not that much a sacrifice because basically the people in the sea live not far at all from the palace. And it's not like Ariel can't visit them on a boat fairly often. So it's, it's, it's kind of the happiest of happy endings really. I suppose unless Ariel got hold of some extremely magical scuba gear and the chance to turn to a mermaid whenever she wants,
7: I, I suppose with any parents marrying off their kid, they are still like even if the kid kind of lives nearby, they're they're saying goodbye. They're yeah. just, you are moving on to a different phase of life that I am not a part of anymore. It doesn't make next. it any less
0: of A misty ending, though. Yeah, it's, uh, it's yeah. It,
7: a, there's not there's not a huge sacrifice though. You're right. Yeah. It's not like we will never meet again.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, that's the, that's the thing, though. They, they needed to deliver people a sort of a, a, a lovely ending, and this absolutely didn't deliver, and um, the the studio became as powerful as Ursula as a result. Actually, it wasn't really at this point. It was Beauty and the Beast. It was, uh, at this point, was a huge win, and people were like, we really like this. But since Oliver and Company had been big as well, it didn't really register until Beauty and the Beast was like, whoa, baby, if
7: that's... The correct term. Yeah, th- this established that Disney was definitely bringing their best game they ever had, and was they're making a, this may have been the best thing they'd ever produced. And there was definitely like, just this sounds more pun-like than I mean, is making waves. <laughs> it, but uh, yeah, it really wasn't like it was big. It was a huge. It was a huge blockbuster level success. Mm-hmm. But it real like they were about to get even they were going to go even further this Sweet. was just the first step
0: we've talked for two hours about the little mermaid
7: and I could talk for like another hour more probably but I don't know what we <laughs> maybe should maybe so like we can talk about the detail for that much but just in comparison to a
0: lot of the other ones we breezed over in 10 minutes
9: <sighs> this, is, this is huge this is the one let's face it for our generation the Leviathan that this this started our Disney yeah
7: they like, I mean I had a huge achievement
9: I had almost zero interest in Disney films before this period. It even took me a little while to get into it. The first one of, of this period that I saw at the cinema was Aladdin
2: mm. Mm.
9: and so then The Lion King. Beauty and the
0: Beast, kit. dude.
9: I didn't, see, I, I didn't see Beauty and the Beast at the cinema. I saw it a lot on VHS. <laughs> Like That's another thing, actually. Weekend.
0: VHS was new. That Disney had sworn off it for a long, long time. It wasn't until they brought out Pinocchio in the late '80s that they were like, "Okay, maybe we'll do VHS." And suddenly, cash crop, license to print money, and um, they were, you know, doing that like crazy. But until that point, it was they would re-release the films theatrically every seven years. We can't conceive of that now because of so many ways to view films every possible convenience wherever the hell you are but just being able to get the disney films on videotape was a big deal especially considering back in those days videotapes were super expensive still
9: yes they were they were about like 20 quid weren't they
0: and in the early 80s they were like 50 quid that is all from us on the little mermaid we will see you next week for the rescuers down under and i'll let sebastian play us out with kissy girl That sounded way too creepy. Dan's videos can be found at Extra Credits. And if you're not familiar with them yet, get binging, because this is some of the best content on YouTube regarding video games and video game design. Oh, and watch Extra History, too, to expand your mind and knowledge. I wish we had this stuff to teach us history when I was at school. So until next week, I've been Alex Shaw.
9: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And school's out.
4: And you don't know why But you're dying to try You wanna kiss the girl Yes, you want her Look at her, you know you do Possible so she wants you want to There is one way to ask her It don't take the word, word Not a not single, single word. word Go on and kiss the girl Sing with me now Shalalalalala, by your mind, look like a boy too shy. Ain't gonna kiss the girl. la -la 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 -la, it's that sad, a little shame. Too bad he gonna miss. you better do it soon. No time will be better. She don't say a word, and she won't say a word until you kiss the don't be scared. You got Go on and kiss the girl. Sha la 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 don't Why? stop now. Don't try to hide it, how? You wanna kiss the girl? Sha la 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 float along in the sun to the sound. The song say, kiss the girl. Sha la 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 la, the music, loud. what the music say. kiss the girl. You gotta kiss the girl. Kiss Wanna kiss Kiss the girl girl. Gotta kiss. kiss the girl
8: Go on and kiss the girl